Merry Christmas, West Seattle. My name is Worth. If this is your first time with us, welcome. If not, welcome back. I do hope that if you're participating with us online this Christmas Eve, that this message brings you encouragement and joy and instills you with a, with a sense of hope. And I want to say thank you to you. Thank you for sharing this special evening with us in this way. I've been reflecting on some things this season and decided that this is what I want to talk about today. I've been thinking about the Christmas story and the things that we often skip over within it. Things that we consider ordinary or mundane, maybe things that we consider ubiquitous, which means, you know, the things that we see everywhere, every day that we often take for granted. And the reason I want to focus on these is because this Christmas story uh, the, and the fact that many of us, many of you, know it so well. I mean, this is the one night of the year when more people the world round visit a church than any other. And that actually means that for a lot of people, this is the one day a year they hear a message about God. Maybe that's you. And it's the same type of message each year. So you're familiar with the story. And because of that, we often take for granted the single frames of reference and the objects within the story that have much deeper meanings. And as I've been thinking about this, I've actually come to see much more significance to certain parts of the story and certain objects within the story as well. Instead of viewing them as things that are considered ordinary, they're actually quite extraordinary. I like the word extraordinary. It means something is extra. You take something ordinary and you add some extra to it. It becomes extraordinary. And so on an otherwise ordinary night, Jesus's birth makes what seems ordinary actually extraordinary. On that very first Christmas, people, people were waking up in Bethlehem and they're going about their daily lives. And there was this census, a census so that people had to go back to their hometown and be counted. And there were a lot of relatives in town. Some of you are, are feeling that right now, I bet. There were people who got up in the morning and were like, oh man, we got to make food for all these people. We got to get to the market like yesterday. And they had no idea that this ordinary day would turn out to be extraordinary because Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was going to be born later that night in their town. And in the ordinariness of everyday life, I wonder how often we go throughout our days aware of the fact that Jesus is with us. He's with you. He's with me. At Christmas, we remember some of the other names of Jesus, the main one being Emmanuel. And that's why we celebrate because Emmanuel means the with us God. He is still with me. He is still with you. And even though the days seem ordinary, if we took time to ponder in our hearts what, it, what this reality means, that the God of the universe, Jesus, Emmanuel, became like us to be with us, maybe our ordinary days would seem a little less ordinary. Maybe we'd come to find our existence in life is extraordinary because Jesus is with us. He's with me. He's with you. Jesus is with us, and his presence makes what may seem ordinary, extraordinary. So I want to take a look at some scenes and objects, some realities with you today from the Christmas story of the birth of Jesus. And as we look at these scenes, I hope you'll find some things that look ordinary but are actually quite extraordinary. Maybe before we jump in, I'll just give you one thing to think about. If you're watching this or you've ever gone to a Christmas Eve service or a Christmas Mass or Midnight Mass on Christmas, what happened on that night so long ago, no matter how you view it, must have been extraordinary simply because people would not be talking about it or celebrating it 
2,000 years later, if that were not the case. So please listen carefully. Many of you have heard the story of Jesus' birth many times, like I said before. Maybe you've heard it a few times, but maybe it's been a while, or maybe you've never heard it. Maybe that's you. But as you're listening to the story, I want you to listen very closely. The first Christmas took place in the town of Bethlehem. It was prophesied hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah would be born there. And the nickname for Bethlehem was the city of David. And that was because King David from the Old Testament, it said that his family would be present there again in Bethlehem. And that the only reason that, and really the only reason Jesus's family, Mary and Joseph, were in that town is because of the census. So the leader of the Roman Empire, Caesar, he wanted to know how many people were in his domain. That's why he took the census. How many people did he actually rule over was the question he wanted to answer. And he wanted to know this not only for bragging rights, of course, but because of taxes, because taxes make the empire more powerful all the time. The leaders of the Roman Empire wanted everyone to think that they actually cared about peace. They actually talked about peace all the time. They coined that phrase that many of you are familiar with, the Pax Romana. And they would say, we're not controlling everybody. We want you to have peace. But the truth is that many people, including this first century Jewish community, were extremely oppressed. They had to do whatever Caesar told them to do. If they didn't do what he said, if they didn't toe the line, then their lives could just be snuffed out and it happened all the time. And so this census wasn't just a nice opportunity to visit your relatives back home in your hometown. It was like, you better go do this or else. And everybody was so poor, it was kind of hard to think about having a big sit down family meal. And so it's not like it is today. And so uh, everyone was heading back to their ancestral home because of one reality, fear. They were afraid not to go. They were afraid of the consequences if they, were, if they didn't go. And so Joseph's, Joseph's family, his whole extended family, is probably traveling back to their hometown together to Bethlehem. And Joseph is from the royal line of David. He's a royal, which we don't think about Joseph that way. He's a royal of that time, but of a very oppressed people group. And he's very poor. So let's read part of this story. And I want you to pay attention to look for the ordinary in Luke 2, starting in verse 6. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Let's stop there. This makes a lot of sense if you know anything about houses back then. Most people only had one room in their home. Sometimes they had a second room for guests. So if they have any extended family there, that extended family doesn't have a whole lot to offer when dozens of extra relatives roll into town. Like they don't have a lot, they don't have like a bunch of bedrooms, you know. So first, first thing I want you to realize, the first ordinary thing is that houses were small. And second, houses back then didn't have any heating or cooling. And I, and I know you know this, but we don't think about it when we hear this story. Uh, some households might find a way to safely keep a fire lit, but wood in the, in the desert, maybe hit or miss, kind of hard to come by probably. So for safety and warmth, what most families would do every night is bring everyone into the one room and bring the animals into the house with them. Seriously, the more bodies, the more warmth, and deserts get cold at night. And if you don't believe me, you can take out your phone right now or jump on your computer, put in Bethlehem into the weather app or go search it on weather.com or whatever. And you'll see that it's cold over there. It gets, gets pretty chilly. So first, houses had one or two rooms. Second, they lacked a heat source. So everybody, including animals, would kind of sardine into the room and huddle up like in a tent when you go camping to keep warm. Third, almost every house would have had a manger. 
a manger is just a feed trough, maybe something like this, maybe or maybe not. This might not be an accurate replica of a first century manger, but a manger would have been completely, a completely ordinary everyday object. Think of it like you would a stove or refrigerator in your house. Everybody was used to it. And this manger would be inside the house during the night. During the day, it was mobile. They put it outside and you fill it with straw to keep the animals fed and busy in the evening when you're trying to sleep. Everybody usually had an animal or two. And so mangers were not the equivalent of a baby crib. And let's face it, that's how we've been, all of us have been trained to view mangers as like a baby crib because of the Christmas story. But in reality, this ordinary manger would be the equivalent for us today of a dog dish. Like everybody in West Seattle, almost everybody it seems like has a dog. So we know what a dog dish is and that's what the manger was. And then fourth, I want you to think about the swaddling cloth because we still do swaddling today. It's very ubiquitous. Every household back then would have access to swaddling cloth. So a manger and some swaddling cloth is pretty normal, ordinary stuff for the, for the story that we're used to. The first Christmas night, the scriptures don't tell us exactly where this manger is. Maybe you've read up on it. Some people think maybe it was a barn, like a space, like a stable. Others say that it was more likely that it was in a cave. But there's actually a large contingent of history scholars who think it might have just been this manger was smack dab in the middle of the living room of the one room or two room house, which was set up for the animals that would be brought in at night, like it always was. You know, it's the dog dish in the corner of the kitchen. So that's a very plausible view of how this whole thing went down when it says they went to the manger. It might just be the guest room. So kids, I want you to imagine if your parents told you tonight that one of your relatives coming to town to stay with you and you actually never met her before, but get ready because she's going to have a baby in our living room. It's going to be fun. I hope you're ready. <laughs> this could have been the way it was, but then something happens that reminds us that this isn't just some plain old ordinary Christmas story situation, starting in verse 8 of Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Okay, I don't know about you, but when they say this will be a sign that you'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, it's like, whoop-dee-doo. Like, how many babies are born and they're wrapped in cloths, right? But it's lying in a manger. That's a little bit different. But still, it's like, so you're camping out in a field, and then angels appear suddenly out of nowhere and start singing. And that's not the sign? Of course it is. Of course that's part of the sign. But the message that they, they say is that, the true sign, the real deal, will be a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. And that's a weird statement, the details about wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Because we, we have all seen uh, swaddled babies in, in, in a wrapped up in a blanket, you know, to keep them tight and cozy. They had that too. That's extremely ordinary. But shepherds back then actually did know a little bit about swaddling. 
in a very specific and special way. Because when a baby lamb was born, if it was found to be without blemish, like if it was pure and perfect, they would take it and wrap it up in a cloth to protect it and keep it without blemish. They would swaddle it, in other words. At that time, the Jewish people thought that forgiveness came when they would bring a baby lamb without blemish to the temple for sacrifice. And I know that's hard for some of you here, especially for you kids out there, but this was a long time ago. What I want you to understand is that using this loaded language about a swaddled baby, when the angels burst into the night sky, they tell the shepherds that this little baby will be assigned to them and it will be wrapped like a perfect baby lamb without blemish. Like lying in a lamb trough where the lambs and sheep could get their food. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And it's much later on we have this amazing scene in the Gospels when Jesus has grown up and his cousin John the Baptist sees him coming and he says about Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we today, we're, we're privileged to know something that happens later on in the story that connects, us, connects in this really profound way. But I think I think the shepherds knew it too and were let in on this profound reality like right away. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The shepherds probably realized that the ordinary swaddling cloth and the ordinary manger were actually extremely extraordinary signs that this baby, if he's the Messiah, had come to save the world. And this is why if you've been a Christian for like a few seconds, you've probably heard this phrase before at Christmas or at Easter, the cradle and the cross are made of the same wood. And that's a hard reality, but it's Emmanuel, God with us, God who is like us, God who became one of us to be us, to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us. It's no surprise then how the shepherds respond to this news in verse 16. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told, uh, told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What's interesting here is nobody told them that they had to spread the word, but they were overcome with excitement and amazement so that they had to share. They just had to share. And they go and tell everybody this news because they had been in their usual ordinary space out in the field where they lived, where they did the same old, same old every night, every day, day in, day out. And God sent a message right to them, right in the middle of their ordinary, everyday existence and space. And they got a glimpse of this baby who was making the ordinary extraordinary. And they would never, ever forget that experience. Jesus's presence on earth means that we if we want to, can experience the extraordinary opportunity to be saved by God, to be saved from brokenness in this world, to be saved from the brokenness in our own hearts, to be saved from the sin that holds us back, to be saved from ourselves, in fact, because we all need a Savior, a rescuer. Jesus, Emmanuel, is our extraordinary Savior, and He wants to save us. He wants to offer us forgiveness, and we just have to ask. In this story, The people in it had been longing to be saved from oppression for so long. They had waited for so long while they saw the brokenness around them and the political system of their day and the brokenness in themselves. And they knew that they needed a Savior. They needed a Savior. And Christmas is our reminder 
just like it was for them that they've been they were waiting and we've been waiting for a savior to come back again and we see the brokenness in our hearts and in the world that we we know we need to be saved from perhaps there's some longing in your life maybe you're not even sure what exactly you're longing for and i want to want to wonder tonight along with you might that longing be a savior to come into your life to set you free Well, a little while later in the story, actually a few years later, if you do the maths, uh, some wise men show up with three gifts. And by this time, Jesus is a toddler. They bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Maybe it looked something something like this. I have this box. It's a it's I don't know if you can see it, but it has a little bit of gold and frankincense and myrrh in it. This uh, some of the three things in it. It's not very expensive, actually. The story doesn't give us the specifics on how much of each of these gifts were given, but what we do know is that this was a very special and very precious collection of gifts that the Magi brought. You ever wonder why people called these guys wise men in the first place? I mean, I've wondered that before. Like, how do we know? Well, there must have been something that revealed this. And I think it's this. As scholars have studied this, they're basically like, these were extremely smart, learned men from the Arab community who were sought out to be able to help people make wise decisions. People would call on them to get help making smart choices. I think we often hear the Christmas story and we view these guys in it as an ordinary commonplace occurrence. But the fact that their wisdom called them to search out and find this little toddler hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles from home, that's pretty extraordinary. This would be like whoever you think is the smartest person on the planet now, figuring this out that Jesus is the Savior and making every effort to travel the world in search of this toddler boy. And rightly, they assume that Jesus should be in a palace, as the story tells it. But when they figure out he's not there, the kicker is that they don't give up. They don't dismiss it as a wild goose chase. They display their wisdom even further by actually going to this ordinary family in this ordinary little town, to this ordinary little house, in this unremarkable little, you know, manger scene. Except that they do the remarkable and they continue to search for him and find him and his poor little family. This is wisdom beyond your average, ordinary kind of wisdom, don't you think? And they brought these three gifts, objects that today are pretty ordinary. We can get gold and frankincense and myrrh pretty easily, like in that box I showed you. Think about how many people have a gold ring on their finger or earrings or a necklace. Though ordinary now, these gifts would have been extraordinarily precious at that time, even if it was just a small quantity To a family like this, this is wealth and value. It was expensive. But on the other hand, these things would have been very ordinary, perhaps, to the wise men because they were people of great wealth. We think they had a lot because they were able to travel in a large caravan for such a great distance to find Jesus. And in that moment, as they give these gifts to the family, these common things for them become extraordinary for a family that has so little. And we're familiar with this. I think we think this way all the time because we all know people who have way more than us. And then we also know people who have way less than us. And sometimes we have certain things we don't even realize how valuable those certain things might be to somebody else who has something less than us, maybe even far less than us. And that's why Christmas is also a constant reminder that giving to others is so important. I'll give you an example. Uh, Because of the generosity of our church uh, this, this past year, Um, our compassion fund was boosted up and we were able to help tons and tons and tons of families this year who were in need. And 
one of these great stories from this was that we, we, uh, we gave a gift of uh, a financial gift to a family that we thought was in need, and, and they were, but they knew a family that was even in more need. And so when we gave them the gift, they thought about it and they got back to us and they said, would it be all right if we took this gift that you gave us and gave it to this other family that is in extreme need? And we were like, love, 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 love that. Please do that. And, and I can't wait to hear even more about the outcome of that. And, and I hope that the people that they're giving it to know that it's because of Jesus that this generosity is coming their way. But in this moment, in this story about Jesus, this meant the world to his poor family. But these gifts were also extraordinary, not just because they were valuable, but if you remember, King Herod wanted, to, wanted Jesus killed. So it's likely that the value of these gifts helped Joseph and Mary and Jesus survive as they escaped to Egypt until, until Herod was no longer a threat and they could return home. Now these gifts were talked about for hundreds of years before this story because a prophet named Isaiah spoke about them in Isaiah 60, 1 through 3 and in verse 6. This is what it says hundreds of years before Jesus appeared. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. And all from Sheba will come bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Well, when most people back then in Jesus' time heard this verse, they thought Isaiah was talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city, the place where nations will be drawn to. It's the place where the glory of God shines. When Isaiah said, nations will come to your light and kings to your brightness of your dawn, people thought he was referring to Jerusalem. But I think that Isaiah was really talking about Jesus. Nations will be drawn to him. Wherever Jesus is, that is where the glory of the Lord will shine. And so wise men, magi, come from the east to bring these gifts to honor Jesus. They knew that he would be the most extraordinary leader that had ever lived. These wise men knew it. Do we know it? That's the question. Do you know it? Do we know that Jesus is an extraordinary leader? Jesus, Emmanuel, the with us God, offers to guide us, to give wisdom to us. Jesus sent his spirit to be with us, to help us through the darkest seasons of our lives. Perhaps the light and life that Jesus' leadership brings is exactly what you need this Christmas. What if we let Jesus come into our ordinary lives and lead us in extraordinary ways? Perhaps we'd experience the glory of God in new ways, like right away and in the coming new year. I think that's something everybody wants. These words from Isaiah, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Those words, Jesus confirms them from Isaiah. He says, these words are about me. In John 8, we see Jesus at what is called the Feast of Dedication, Feast of Tabernacles, which used to be called the Feast of Maccabees before that, after a family of Jewish freedom fighters, the Maccabees, led their countrymen to overthrow the Seleucid invaders who had profaned the Jewish temple when they attacked. So according to rabbinic tradition, when the Jews re-entered the temple after they kicked them out, they found only one small sealed jug of olive oil that had not been profaned by the Seleucids. And they used that oil to light the menorah in the temple. But it was only a lot, enough oil to last for one day. But it ended up lasting for eight. Their victory later became celebrated as an eight-day winter festival celebrated by the Jews in the month of December, sometimes in late November, 
Today, this festival is called Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. Back then, when they were celebrating this, they would light up the whole city of Jerusalem with these massive pillars that had oil fires on top of them. You could see the city from miles and miles away because of these things. Jesus is at this festival teaching in it in John 7 and John 8. We see him stand up in John 8 and tell the multitudes in a very loud voice, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And I'm reminded of this at Christmas because everywhere you look, especially in the evening, there are Christmas lights on the eaves of houses, Christmas trees with stars on top or angels. We buy more candles at Christmas than at any other time of the year. Did you know the candle industry is actually worth over $3 billion annually? $3 billion. And 35% of candles sold each year are sold during the Christmas season. Lights all aglow. It's kind of a commonplace, often taken for granted, ordinary part of our Christmas experience. But Jesus takes the ordinary and transforms it into the extraordinary. He, Emmanuel, the with us God, and he's the light of the world. And when he says that, when he says, I'm the light of the world and you'll never walk in darkness, that's an invitation. Jesus invites us to choose to accept him as our Savior, to say, I want you, Jesus, to be the leader of my life, the light in my life. And if Jesus is your Savior and your leader, then Jesus goes on to say something absolutely extraordinary. He says, you are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually mentions one of these ordinary small one-room homes like we were talking about before, like the one he was born into. And he says, the light of just one lamp can give light to the entire house. He says that right after he says, you can be the light of the world. He says, a light can be put up on a stand and it can give light much further than you can possibly ever believe. The ordinary turned extraordinary that night that Jesus was born, the light of the world. There was probably just one little oil lamp, maybe a few that were lighting up that room wherever Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was probably the source of the first beams of light that would shine on the face of Jesus, the light of the world. Such an ordinary object, a light, a little flickering flame. And Jesus makes it extraordinary. And then he says, you can be just like this extraordinary light and you can share it with others. Jesus invites us all to let his light shine through us. And he later says, so that people will see the good things that you do and the good things in your heart and they will glorify God. Jesus is the extraordinary light of the world and he invites us to shine his light to the dark corners of our world, of our city, of our neighborhood, of the street that you live on, in your family. I don't know about you, but lately, it just seems that there are no shortage of dark corners in our world. And Jesus invites us to take up all the myriad opportunities to join him and step into the dark and light up the world. There are so many opportunities to glorify God with our love, with your love, with your goodness, the ability to come alongside somebody who needs your presence, who needs your encouragement, who needs your help. Think right now of who that is for you in your life. Someone who could use just a little bit more hope, who could use a little bit more love. Jesus proved his extraordinary love by becoming one of us, Emmanuel, the with us God, by coming to earth and growing up to do an incredible ministry of love and good works, and then to give his life away on the cross. But then to come back to life, to prove that he has conquered death and conquered brokenness. Now we're waiting for the future where he'll come and say, all the wrong things in this world are made right. 
All the sad things will be untrue. They will be erased. No more crying, no more tears, no more anguish, no more anger, no more guilt, no more shame, no more hurting, nothing but love. So we stand here waiting and longing for that in this moment before Christmas. And his extraordinary love is his gift to you tonight, right now. And you can receive that love right now. And then you can let that love overflow to the people around you, the people that God brings into your path. Jesus wants to shine his light through us. And we can receive that love and we'll be able to have enough. We'll be able to have enough to go around. Tonight and tomorrow, maybe when you're sitting in a living room of people or on the phone with friends or family or getting texts from them, maybe just ponder in your heart this reality. That God made you to be able to be like a lamp. A little flickering flame that can give light to the whole house. Whether it's with a phone call or a text or Zoom or a card. However, you can each do that in your own way in the way God made you to be. You've been created to be able to give light to an entire home, to all who are near you, to all you encounter in your life. Jesus is the extraordinary light of the world, and he invites us to shine his light into the dark corners of our world. And that is good news of great joy for all people. Amen. I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.